Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm super excited to have as our guest today, Angie Chernelia. She's a marriage and family therapist here at Winning at Home. You may have caught an earlier episode with her as she was talking about infidelity and betrayal and the dynamics in the context of marriage. Angie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back on. Angie, one of the topics that you have focused on in your work is sexual patterns, sexual dynamics, and Mm -hmm. sexual intimacy. How did that become an area of expertise for you? So I'm licensed as a marriage and family therapist and as a licensed professional counselor. So my master's program was actually in a marriage, couple, and family program. In that program, sex therapy is always introduced in that because really you can't be trained to really be doing couples work and not be touching on that really important piece. So a couple classes were required. I took more because I just really became fascinated with it. And so then even after graduation, I started doing a lot of continued education, attending a lot of in-services and seminars, just learning as much as I could. And it quickly became just my heart's passion and my absolute love. So I've done a lot of training and my next kind of hope and dream and goal is to actually move forward into my ASEC certification, which is basically the national certification for sex therapy. It's awesome. It's one of my favorite parts of my job, to be honest. And you do a great job. Thanks. I started on staff here, wow, almost two years ago. And we started having conversations just about how the way that church talks about sex and intimacy for married couples, Mm -hmm. even if it's well-intentioned, can sometimes cause confusion, frustration, or in the worst case, it can actually cause harm. Mm -hmm. Where are you seeing that in your work? And this is one of those great conversations about intention doesn't equal impact. Hmm. And that rings true for every scenario, right? This can ring true in your relationship. But when we look at how the church has handled discussions about sex, and I want to do that with a disclaimer that now I see a lot of pastors doing the work to do it differently. I see a lot of churches working to change the message. But unfortunately for long time, the church has given a message that unfortunately, how I see it translated in my office is that it's caused a lot of harm. You know, you can do the training on sex therapy, you can gain the knowledge, and the couple comes into your office, and you're always looking at all of these different areas, right? We, we need to look at the, the marriage itself, the emotional connection, the communication, the, the emotional intimacy that that couple has. We're addressing, right, family patterns. We're also addressing their, you know, their sexual history and how they feel safe coming together intimately as a couple. And as I started doing the work about a decade ago, I always kept hitting this block and I could not figure out for a while what it was. And finally, I started engaging in conversations around shame, around where that idea of shame came from, like trying to help clients and couples really dig into where was the shame rooted? Um, Now, for some couples, that was having an emotional effect. And for other couples, it was having a physical effect, even with um, impacting sexual disorders such as like vaginismus. As I was digging into that shame, I more and more kept finding that clients and couples kept pulling back on the same thing. It was the way their church culture, the way their community, and even sometimes the way their families were talking about sex. Um, And a lot of times it even tied right back to... I almost wish I had a sad drum, like a sad drum roll. I don't know if we can do that, James, like a sad drum roll. But it came back to purity culture messages. Couples that were either growing up in the height of purity culture, couples that were already married during purity culture, but for a lot of these couples, it came back to having unravel the shame that was instilled in them through purity culture messages. 
And purity culture, if my understanding is correct, started to kind of emerge or become formalized or crystallized in the 80s and 90s. Does mm-hmm. that sound about correct? Yeah. What are some of the hallmark messages from purity culture that have caused some of these deep wounds that you're helping clients work through these days? The mountain of that is a little overwhelming because okay. even as I've helped clients unravel and even as I've learning more and educating myself more and taking more classes and and unraveling it, it's actually quite overwhelming the mountain of messages that came out of that. But if I could pull it back to like one foundational message that tends to be the root that all of it kind of stems out of, even the word purity, right? Purity culture of like you're pure until you're not. But really it gave this message, this inaccurate message that sex is a need, that it's not a desire, it's an actual need. But the messages it gave about gender is that sex was a need for men, wasn't a need for women, but it was women's responsibility to fulfill that need for men. How that has translated into couples trying to manage that in their marriages is quite honestly just completely devastating. The way that has impacted, I don't even pretend to think that I am seeing a huge scale, right? I am a drop in a giant ocean. But even just the pain I have seen in my office is enough to just feel the devastation of what that message has done. And I'm sure you as a pastor even have like heard other messages that came out of that. But for me, that really is like the foundational message is that it's a need. It's not a desire, but it's only a need for men, not for women. It's just alarming to hear you articulate it that succinctly and that clearly. And Mm -hmm. I think that one of the one of the books that you and I have talked about was Rachel Joy Welcher's Talking Back to Purity Culture. It's Mm -hmm. called Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality. And one of the themes that she highlighted there was a lot of times we talked about purity as only being a need for people who are not yet married. Mm-hmm. Like she said, the implication of purity culture is that you fight for purity and you defend honor, you defend purity, and all that language in and of itself is already problematic. Yes, indeed. She goes, but then you're once you're successful in doing that and everybody's got their rings and everybody's signed a marriage license and everybody's like biblically cohabiting under, under the banner of a marriage, then the quest for purity stops, mm-hmm. which doesn't, which sounds horribly inconsistent. Well, and also it's just confusing for couples because we translate that into like real life, right? It's this like protect, protect purity, protect purity. This is your worth. This is your value. But then the number of couples that have come to my office and through tears kind of laughed because they don't know what else to do of like, but then we're just supposed to jump in bed together and be doing it like bunnies, right? right? We're just supposed to jump in bed and suddenly sex is supposed to be fun and pleasurable and orgasmic and wonderful and And there's these messages that like, well, I have to fulfill this need for him. And so even if it's not pleasurable for her, purity culture many times has even promoted the idea like, well, that's not really the purpose, which I say that with great heaviness and sadness because it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. So I think couples, especially newlywed couples that were growing up in the height of that and even now, they were like, well, it's supposed to, right? Supposed. It's supposed to be this thing. Like if we did it the right way, and I'm doing air quotes, which sure. I always do when I do this, even though it's a podcast. They're like, we did it the right way. So this is supposed to be phenomenal. And then they feel like, what is wrong with us? Right. What did we do wrong? Right. Because literally baked into those messages as that youth pastors gave, and I'm sure I gave versions of them for which now I continue to repent. Mm-hmm. But the, what was baked into that was like, if you defend virginity, God owes you this magical sex life mm. immediately. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird sense of entitlement. And then when these these kids, and I'm doing air quotes, like these kids <laughs> do, they get married and they did everything that they're supposed to do and it doesn't turn out that way, then either A, um, God has failed me, mm-hmm. or B, I fought 
like I fought a battle that I could never win. And unfortunately, usually those are not the messages I'm seeing, Steve. The biggest message I see, especially in both wives and husbands, but especially because I see couples come in and the wife is like, I am broken. Hmm. I must be broken because this is how it's supposed to be. And this is not at all what it is. And so then there's this translation of immediately feeling like they have failed, right? Like you said, this like feeling of failure of like, well, if I had done it right, then it should be. Right. But then also just this innate feeling of like, well, I must be broken. Mm. And it is sad the number of times I have said to couples in my office, I wish you could hear the other pain that happens here because it would make you feel less alone. Because the number of people that I've said that at my office is more than I can count but they feel like they're alone. They're like, it, it's so easy for everyone else. And we are struggling so hard. So I just must be broken. Yeah. The sadness of that, that they were set up for this expectation of what it was supposed to be. But then here's the sad thing. And, and honestly, this is why I felt it was important to even do this message on the podcast is so many of those couples have been like, where the things that we're learning in the brave couples work that they're doing together, right? That's incredibly vulnerable to step into that space. It's some of the bravest people I've ever had the honor to meet. They're like, where else is this information? Why is it that we had to feel so completely broken and bravely step into the vulnerable space of a therapist's office talking about our sexual intimacy to hear the words that, like, you are not broken? Mm. They were like, where where else is this message? Why is it? And I think that's part of that change in culture is, like, this message needs to be talked about a lot more. And I think it is in some ways starting to be discussed more. But they feel so broken and they don't understand why because sexual intimacy isn't being talked about really in the beautiful way that God designed it to be, that it's not perfect, it's messy, and it's silly, and it's, it really takes an incredible amount of communication. But this expectation that if you do it the way purity culture was telling you you should do it, that it's just going to be easy, set couples up for failure to just feel like I'm just broken. Something's just wrong with me. Something's wrong with my body. Mm-hmm. So Angie, when you when you work with individuals or when you work with couples who are feeling just completely overwhelmed and maybe they don't even know, they couldn't identify what purity culture is, but they've been kind of victimized by it. Where do you start? Like where is the first step towards mm-hmm. kind of peeling back the veil of deceit or un- unwriting this destructive script? What's step one? Step one is a very simple question. Let's talk about how you learned about sex. Hmm. Tell me about your experience with that. Um, Now, for some people, they can take it back to a conversation within their family, or maybe it was just the casual overhearing from friends, or um, for some instances, it's like picking up that first Playboy. And for others, it's been, well, we had this youth group, and they talked about the importance of purity, or we had a purity ring ceremony, or... That first step is just saying, like, let's just learn the story about how you learned about sex. How is it talked about? How is it gone about? How did it make you feel about yourself as a woman, as a man, as a sexual person? Like, what messages did that give you? That's often the healthiest starting point to saying, like, let's just understand your story. Um, And when people start to really think back, it can be a little overwhelming at first because they were like, I did not even realize how many messages I was given. But starting there is a really great step because it's the foundation of understanding 
where they've come from, where these messages have come from. And that can help set the foundation for how has that impacted you? And especially how's it impacting you now? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So once people get there, where do you take them? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends what comes out of that conversation, okay. Steve. All right, all right. So, <laughs> let, so give me a couple different, ex- couple different sure. scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say that somebody did have uh, their first exposure to sexual conversations was through pornography or overhearing from less than helpful friends or cousins or older brothers or kids on the bus. Like, mm-hmm. I, where where do you start with that individual or that couple? It's you know, especially clients that have been really ingrained in purity culture messages. Um, a lot of times there's a message of shame engraved in it. We can't really talk about this without also talking about desire and arousal because desire and arousal are not the same things. Okay. And I know I'm branching off a little bit from what you just asked me. Arousal is the body's physiological arousal responses to okay. sexual stimuli, right? People often think that can only happen if there's a sexual desire. That is absolutely not true. Arousal can happen for all kinds of reasons. Not all of them are for desire purposes. Now, sexual desire is what purity culture said was a need. It's not a need. It's actually a sexual desire, right? It's actually about desire. Most people, as they, like, explore the history, like, for instance, if their first exposure was, say, a Playboy magazine or some kind of exposure to a sexual stimulus, well, if they were given messages that, like, that's shameful, that's wrong, that's not okay, and they were exposed to a stimulus like that and they had an arousal response, then immediately arousal becomes coupled with shame, So then suddenly there's this shame that arousal even happened and that purity culture message of, well, it's a need and it's a need for men, not for women, right? Sure. (laughs) So imagine then women also are being taught the message that their arousal is shameful just in and of itself. Hmm. So a young girl having an arousal response to a totally understandable or normal sexual stimuli or just for a physiological response such as like hormone levels. Right? As hormone levels fluctuate, the body can experience a, a level of sexual arousal just due to the hormone shift. That would immediately feel like, oh my gosh, I, what's wrong with me? That's horrible. What's, I'm, I must be sinning. I must be wrong. I must be bad. And so oftentimes as people start to go back to how they experienced sex, how they heard about sex, usually that rope that gets pulled is some kind of message of shame was ingrained. Now, for people, that's all different kinds of things, but starting to understand where that shame came from, and especially for people even like as I was just kind of sharing about desire and arousal and the differences between that, as you start to educate people, they're like, whoa, that's opening up a whole other thing of like, yes, I had this arousal response to this thing, and I felt so much shame about it because that was wrong. And then it's like, okay, let's explore the idea that that was wrong and where that came from, rather than a very normal physiological body response that also was how God designed your body to operate. <laughs> right, right. Uh-huh. That God designed your body with an arousal response, right? God designed that to happen. Your, bo- your body's supposed to work that way. But until you were married, your body wasn't supposed to experience arousal at all. Right. It was supposed to just be a switch. And so the interesting thing, and I know I'm kind of tailgating here. No, but no, this is fine. The, the interesting thing is then a lot of couples realized they were like, oh, my goodness, I've been shutting down this arousal response or feeling that it's shameful the majority of my life. And then suddenly I'm married and I'm being told this is not only okay, but that it should be happening. It should be happening a lot. And it should be, you know, what they show in the movies where it's spontaneous and it's romantic it's, and it's orgasmic. And it's and, and suddenly my body's not responding the way I thought it would. Because a lot of times 
clients realize that there's a correlation between their arousal responses and shame. And now those have been coupled together. Mm. And that doesn't just unravel itself. Right, right. Yeah, so it really spider webs, right? Like there's, and there really is no, I wish I could give you like a definitive answer of like, this is what happens and this is what we see. But each person's story is very unique, but helping them unravel, like, did those shame messages get put into your body? And and how has that impacted your ability to be vulnerable, your ability to fully, authentically come into that intimate space with your spouse? How has that impacted? And that's kind of the trail that it takes. And it's it's fascinating, yeah. Sounds like there's a lot of layers there. There's a lot of layers. So other than addressing shame or other than identifying some purity culture challenges, what other resources or conversations are you encouraging couples to have? I had a client joke with me once that this was one of the most therapisty things I've ever said, and they were right. They were absolutely right. Great sex starts outside of the bedroom. So as much as couples are excited, they're like, we want to dig into the sexual intimacy stuff, you have to be addressing the relationship as well. And a lot of couples come in and and are really stuck, right, in bad communication patterns or not feeling supported. So one of the great resources I love to give to couples, and I love myself, that talks about how do you even understand this framework? How do you start to tear apart these messages, right, like arousal and desire, and is helping couples understand the importance of sexual context. Um, so there's a great book by Emily Nagaski that's called Come As You Are. Um, I cannot keep this book in my office. I give away every copy I have because it's just such a wealth of knowledge. But she does a great job educating couples on that great sex starts outside of the bedroom, right? So she actually, through her work and through her research, um, discovered, and actually it was the Kinsey Institute as well, discovered that there's a dual control model for sexual desire. So a purity culture gave a lot of messages of just like, you're married, so you should just be good to go. And then couples were like, we don't feel good to go. Things aren't going great. And even on the far end of the spectrum, it was incredibly painful or it was incredibly traumatic. The body was just not responding the way they thought it should be. And really, the church hadn't given any other resources, right? Like these young couples had no idea what was happening. They had no idea about body arousal. They have no idea about desire. They have no idea about how to communicate about sexual intimacy about the status of their marriage, about the status of their relationship, um, and even the idea that it shouldn't just be a switch. Emily Nagoski's work is absolutely groundbreaking, absolutely incredible. Um, It's probably the pioneer book on um, women's sexual health and sexual wellness. And it talks about the dual control mode of sexual desire and that it's not just about turning on the ons, it's also about understanding the offs, right? Understanding the breaks. And so, so many couples are like, yeah, well, we just we just need you to figure out how to, like, increase. Now, specifically, usually it's her level of desire, which, once again, goes back to that message that it's like it's a need, air quotes, more air quotes. It's a need for men and not for women, which is just it's not a need. It's a desire. But also the idea that, like, women are also sexual beings and that women's sexual pleasure is not also equally important it gives a, a groundwork for couples to actually have something to dig into. So usually I'm recommending that book to couples to just help them not only receive education on the physiology, but also have conversations about context, right? Sexual context. What creates great sexual experiences? What doesn't? And so helping couples navigate the conversation 
And so many couples feel so awful with they're like, this seems like it should be so easy, right? Like it should be so simple. I'm like, why should this be simple? No one has ever taught you this. No one has ever modeled this for you. And in fact, you've been modeled the opposite thing your entire life of like, we don't actually, like for instance, purity culture, we don't actually talk about sex or how to make great sex happen or how to connect with your spouse in fully intimate ways of spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy, mental intimacy. And then we just tell you like, yeah, you should be having lots of it. It should be going great. We don't actually teach you any of this stuff. So giving that as a resource is is usually also one of my first steps is to just give couples a resource to dig into a little bit and to start the conversation. I just went off on a huge tangent. No, no. I did. No, but I hear you saying that purity culture taught us that like great, exciting sex is a prize rather than a practice that is moved towards. Yes. I want to cheer for you. That is awesome. Yes, exactly. That it is supposed to be this like prize that should be happening for doing it a certain way and not something that should be a practice that should be a deep coming together that happens in a marriage. That's a learning process for life. We know based on research that people are reporting the greatest sexual satisfaction usually in their 50s and 60s. And typically, the research has showed it's because they've been in a committed, intimate relationship. And so the freedom to get to explore themselves in that way and also to know their bodies, to know each other, is just continued to grow. But also, like media shows us, it's only young, thin, athletic, attractive bodies that are able to have great sex. But again, going back, not to make the whole thing about like ragging on what youth pastors got wrong in the 90s, but... But we'll bring it back to that, yeah. But but nobody said, this is a journey and it takes time. Yes, it takes time. It yes. was follow these steps mm-hmm. and on your wedding night, everything magically comes together. Yeah. Which wasn't true and wasn't fair. Yeah. And wasn't helpful (laughs) and wasn't helpful at all. Yes, because it was this message that it was this message that things were just going to click into place, which then leads to what I was discussing about that feeling of brokenness and also not the feeling of support of where do we go to talk about this, right? The purity culture messages were given in a large context. And so when it didn't go that way for couples, where do they turn? Where do they turn? Because the place that they heard it from was usually their church or their youth group or their, right? And so they're like, who do we go to? And so the sad thing is, is that many of these couples, the stories I have heard of couples coming back from their honeymoon, and and this is not one story, this is, I can't quite say hundreds, but it's a lot of desperately searching for materials, you know, reading books, trying to find articles, and I know one of the other books you and I have connected on is The Great Sex Rescue by the similar author, by Gregory, who talked about how, unfortunately, a lot of, especially the Christian books on the market about sexual intimacy, unfortunately held very similar damaging messages that purity culture did and, in fact, actually promoted them. So couples that were experiencing the damage of these messages that were desperately seeking guidance and wisdom and wanting to know what to do we're then leaning into resources that was just reinforcing the same problem. I love her book, The Great Sex Rescue, because she very boldly, very bravely, and very vulnerably 
actually names these resources, which people desperately needed. They needed to know that they weren't crazy. <laughs> yeah. And her book is research-based. Research-based. So she's using not just anecdotal but statistical evidence yes. from evangelical women who have heard a lot of this destructive messaging and are trying to trying to just sift through it all. Yes. And that's what I love, too, because even in her book, she discusses how so much of the information that was given wasn't was not only not research-based, which, of course, all great clinical work should be based in. What, it wasn't even research-based. It wasn't fact-based at all. Right. Um, and even some of her, I had to actually laugh at the chapter when she was digging into where the three-day rule came from. Talk about that for people who haven't heard of it. Yeah, I don't know if you got to that that part. Okay, but she was talking about how for some reason in her, in her studying, in her research, and in her anecdotal findings, it kept coming back that couples and women especially kept being told by their churches that like, Men needed to have sex every three days. I am trying to not laugh while I say this because it's it's just bizarre um, that men needed to have sex every three There's days. Is that a Bible verse for that? There is not. Is there is there a book I'm missing? Is it with the Dead Sea Scroll? I don't know. <laughs> There's not. That men needed to have sex every three days in order to keep their bodies in a place where they weren't going to be. It's hard for me to get these words out. They weren't going to be susceptible to sin. Yikes. She's a very great author. It was written with two other authors as well, but she very succinctly describes how she did dug into that and discovered that it was based on the medical finding that every 72 hours, the sperm in a man's body regenerates. So with no medical consultation, medical backing, no medical understanding, what somehow the Christian community decided that that must be uncomfortable. And so men must need a release every 72 hours. And so her anecdotal stories in here are actually sad but hilarious of couples that were trying to figure this out. And then when the couple finally was able to actually have a conversation about what worked for their marriage, what worked for them as the two individual people that they were in their unique marriage, they were finally like, oh, so we don't have to be having sex every three days. Um, And I loved the story she told where the wife was like, why is my husband never pursuing me? Why is he never pursuing me? And he finally was like, babe, I'm trying to keep up with you. Like, what is going on? Because they were like, literally given these messages that like, yeah, go ahead. But the one thing that all those books had in common mm-hmm. is they were written by men. <laughs> and so we're finally in yes. a, a far too late. Far too late. But yes cultural moment within the church mm-hmm. where women are getting to write about it as therapists, mm-hmm. but not as pastors. And we can have a different conversation about that on a different day. Mm-hmm. But, but, but but excellent point, Steve. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. But maybe, maybe one of the gifts of the post kind of Me Too era mm-hmm. is that it was giving women in the church permission to talk not just about sexual trauma, but also about sexual desire and sexual frustration and sexual expectations. Yes. And maybe finally feeling permission to say, like, maybe we have a voice of what's happening to our own bodies, right? About our own self as a sexual person that maybe women also like sex. Maybe women also like pleasure. Maybe women also want to be a part of that conversation when it includes us, right? Yeah. And so I love that you mentioned that. I love seeing, right, these female authors so bravely come out. It was brave of her to, like, call out these books. Sure. It's also very sad that I'm like, it took the bravery of this woman to call out these books for us to finally see that, like, maybe these messages aren't okay. Yeah. 
And that's where oftentimes couples feel so stuck because they're like, I'm trying to unravel these messages, but I, I see them everywhere I go. Right. I love seeing couples get to read also The Great Sex Rescue and be like, oh, my goodness, that's us. That chapter's us. That story's us. Right. And finally getting to feel like they're not alone. And, and as we think about some of the conversations that are finally happening in the church, it seems like purity culture was uniquely poised to squash any conversations, confessions, or revelations about sexual brokenness or sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Are you getting the sense that there's finally some space to talk about some of the nightmares that need to be addressed so that people can experience healing that wasn't there before? Oh, I wish I could wholeheartedly say yes, but I can't. Okay. Remember, I am very aware I am a small drop in the bucket, right? So my view, I'm very aware of this, but from what I see in my office in almost a decade of work, I haven't seen that. I haven't Mm. seen couples feel. I have seen that I think churches have been more open to hearing about men's sexual brokenness, right? Stories about pornographic addiction or sex addiction or prostitution or infidelity. I think there's an effort to like, hey, let's be more open about this. But unfortunately, at least how I'm seeing it translate to the couples that come into my office, I've even heard this more times than I wish to care is there's this like, praise of let's be open about this struggle and now let's forgive and move on Mm. and there's no there's no help there's no resources and there's no accountability of the fact that you know the church is not a therapy office right so it's a beautiful place to be like hey let's be open about the fact that we're all, all broken people but at least from what i see in my office it's becoming a safer place for men to talk about their brokenness but i i haven't heard that about women feeling safe to come forward and say like, hey, I've been struggling. Couples I see in my office, there's such a feeling of shame and brokenness around feeling like they have a desire problem or they don't want sex enough. Or, and I've, so far, I haven't seen anyone who's felt like, I felt like I could really go to my pastor about this. And also like you named, we have to name the gender, sure. right? Like how yep. many, right? The, how many people would feel comfortable going to their male pastor being like, hey, by the way, right. I'm struggling having orgasms. Right, right. So I have seen movement and like, let's talk more about porn addiction, sex addiction. Let's talk about infidelity. Let's talk about sexual trauma. Let's, but I haven't seen a real movement of like, are we also talking about sex in the aspect of like, what's happening with women's bodies? What's happening with women's pleasure? What's happening with the hurt that pornographic addiction, which isn't just a male issue, right? 30%. um, Now that statistic is all over the place. So it's hard to really put a number on it, especially not quoting a specific study. But women also struggle with pornographic addiction. And I don't know if it feels quite as safe for women to come forward and be like, hey, I'm, I'm also struggling. Like, I'm, right. I'm also struggling with this and feeling like, where do I go with that? So I wish I could wholeheartedly say yes, but I don't, I don't think but so. we're not there yet. We're not there. So Angie, you're a mom. I am. What do you want to be true about your son's journey? As he Ooh, gets I love that question. To puberty, that, which love is still that a, a good decade off, right? Yes, my you've son is my son is turning two in March. Okay. My son is turning two, so I'm a, I'm a ways off. So you've got plenty of time to figure this out. Mm-hmm. What do you want to be true about his journey with faith and grace and the church and sexuality that wasn't necessarily true of yours? Mm. Well, I 
I could sing my husband's praises all day long. I'm married to an incredible man. But I love that him and I both had our own healing journey of right our own trauma through purity culture, our own, how that impacted us. And we both really done the work on not only individually with ourselves, but how that's impacted our marriage. And so I don't pretend to not realize how privileged I am, right, to be in this with my husband, with my partner in parenting of, of who is on this journey with me. So right off the bat, it was incredibly important to us. Now, my husband's a nurse. I need to put that out there. So not only as a medical professional, but as a mental health professional, it was incredibly important to us that there is nothing shameful about our son's body. Mm. So our son, right off the bat, he's almost two. He knows that mommy has a vulva, and he knows that him and daddy have a penis and have testicles. He knows that these are parts of his body, just like his legs, his arms, his ears, and that our body has many useful parts, and these are also useful parts. So right off the bat, the thing I wanted to change is, and I know I am so excited to see my son's generation grow up because I know my husband and I are not alone in this. I see not only clients in my office, but our friends, and not even just in Michigan, across the country, doing this with their children about wanting there to not be shame about their body and to not put pressure expectations on their body. And even the idea about we're very big on teaching our son the idea of consent um, and consent over his body and consent over other people's bodies. And I know so many parents that are also doing the same thing. And it really excites me to see what is that going to do to his generation growing up? You know, the idea of just that there's not shame around his body. But especially like you asked, as he gets into puberty, I, I'm so excited for him to hear the beauty that God made his body to be and the beauty that sex is and how wonderful it is and how awesome it is. And I want him to know that arousal, body arousal, is a normal, healthy, God-given body response, that there is not shame with that. He's not doing anything wrong by having a body arousal response. And just educating on what that is and how it happens and what does that look like when you get married? And so I have so many couples that ask me too, they're like, I'm so terrified of my children having the same thing, but I don't know how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to have, and I think you and Sarah Young did an amazing series on sex talk, right? Yeah, we had some podcast episodes and we also did a webinar for parents. Yes, the webinar was so fantastic. So if you're looking for resources, I encourage you to watch that. But um, having that conversation with him about just sexual intimacy and what that looks like and being very open. Sarah said it best when she said it needs to not be a talk, but a conversation. And I'm so excited that because my husband and I are both so passionate about it, that for our son, it's going to be an ongoing conversation that I hope when, because it's not an if, when there's, you know, pictures that go around school or when there's this rumor or when there's this thing or when that mom and dad are the ones that he knows he can come to. Right. Right. And there's no judgment. There's no shame. There's no, well, you shouldn't be looking at that. Right. It's just literally like, let's talk about this. How did that impact you? And talking about that his body is not a weapon, but also the very, very important message that sex is not a need. It's a desire. And it's a very healthy, wonderful desire. And I joke all the time that just like every parent, we are going to do our very best with all the great purposes. And we will probably screw them up in our own unique and fantastic way. (laughs) That's so good, Angie. It's good to hear you say that. As we wrap up, if you had any closing words Mm -hmm. of encouragement to individuals or couples who are still trying to figure out how to disentangle themselves from the shame Mm -hmm. that they may have picked up over the years, what would you say? I would say first and foremost, you don't have to do it alone. 
your sexual intimate relationship can feel like the last thing you want to go talk to a stranger about. But just like you would go to your doctor's office if you had something that was broken or something that was wrong, and you'd be like, hey, can you help me? Your marriage, your sexual intimacy deserves just as much attention and care. And there are experts out there that can absolutely help navigate this with you. Sexual intimacy should not be this checklist. It should not be this like box that we check once a week. It also should not be based off of shame or guilt or duty. It should not be painful. If any of that is happening in your marriage and you feel stuck or broken or don't know where to turn, know that you don't have to unravel that alone. Almost every couple that's come into my office has had to like challenge that message for themselves. And they have done so bravely of realizing that like their marriage, their sex life is worth fighting for. And you don't have to do it alone. We will fight with you, right? We will fight right alongside you and we will help you navigate that in any way we can. Because when I see couples get to experience the beauty of what God actually designed it to be in their marriage, where it is a space of safety, it is a space of deep connection, it's a space of playfulness, of fun, of laughter, none of them have ever regretted doing the work that got them there. So you're not alone. You've got people that will help walk you through it. And also God probably has more for you than you realize. Great words and a perfect note for us to end on. This is your second time joining us. I'm really hoping that there's going to be a third. Angie, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Thanks, Steve. You've been listening to Hope Through Hard Stuff. If you've got questions about how to take a next step in getting help in any area of your life, this topic or otherwise, please don't hesitate to visit our website, winningathome.com. Thanks so much for checking in. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.